You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur, and joining me in the studio is Yavor Denchev. He is a master's student in microbiology. Thank you for being here today. Hi, thank you. It's a pleasure. Let's be a little more specific about what you're actually studying. Uh, it's a pretty broad field to say microbiology. Uh, in a nutshell, maybe you can give us an idea of, uh, of what, your, uh, what your focus is. Oh, well, um, what our lab does is we work on um, infectious diseases and in particular uh, syphilis and leptospirosis. Hmm. Um, what I'm working on is the syphilis part. So we're looking at um, the ability of, or we're actually trying to figure out the molecular basis of how this bacterium is able to spread around the human body because hmm. it's, it, it has the incredible capacity to go pretty much anywhere in the body. Um, so um, we're trying to figure out how it does it at the molecular level. So potentially, in the end, we'll be able to figure out the, the pathway and find a way to make a vaccine for this pathogen. For syphilis? Yes. Wow. It's not really a disease that we hear much about. Is it one of those diseases that was, you know, a, a big problem in the past and then sort of less of a problem in, like, more modern times? But I feel like I've heard it, maybe news stories of it cropping up again in more people. That's true. Yeah, think. it's it's a major burden in the third world countries, mainly Africa, Um and um, in Canada, recently in the States, also, so first um, world countries, they, there is a resurgence for sure. And I think in the last decade, there's been about a um, um, tenfold increase in Canada. Wow. Um, and this is an increase in cases among um, the general population, as well as in congenital syphilis cases, which is cases in babies. Because hmm. syphilis can, the bacterium can cross the placental barrier and infect babies as well. Wow. Um, yeah, so people don't talk about it much, but it's out there, and um, BC is pretty high up there in numbers. Really? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Actually, in Vancouver, the the situation is pretty bad. Wow. Why is that? Do you know? In developed countries, uh, it's usually um, the cases are mostly in uh, um, in the male population, and um, so that would include uh, men who have sex with men mm-hmm. as a specific subgroup. Um, also people who abuse drugs. Hmm, interesting. I guess so Vancouver is a pretty populated area as well, so it condenses. Metro Vancouver is the, the highest density of cases. Wow. Does that factor into your studies here at UVic out on the coast? or? Well, we the lab I work in is the only lab that actually in Canada that works at the molecular basis of syphilis, trying to figure out the, the way the pathogen spreads around the body and causing infection. Um, so we have the... Um, the expertise and the um, the technology to do these studies here that pretty much nowhere else are done. Mm. Uh, so it's pretty exciting, yeah. and um, hopefully we're 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 getting there. We have our breakthroughs. It's a lot of work. It's really tough to work with this pathogen, hmm. um, but we're we're getting there. Why is it so tough to work with this one in particular? Um, it's a very interesting bacterium. It's uh, it's very beautiful. It's very spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, it rotates, kind of like has this corkscrew motility. But it's it's an obligate anaerobe, which means that it dies when it's exposed to oxygen. Um, so. It can only be cultured uh, when there's pretty much no oxygen or little oxygen. And also, it dies outside of the host. And it mainly infects humans and rabbits. Hmm. So you cannot grow it in the lab like most other bacteria, which makes it really difficult to work with. If you cannot grow it in the lab, that means that you have to use rabbits to populate it. 
Hmm. And actually, you you work with um, you have to infect rabbits and you have to extract the bacteria from the testes of the rabbits. Um, it's a tough job and not pleasant and not. But that's the only way to do it. Um, so far, it hasn't been cultured. Um, and if you can culture it in the lab, that means you cannot do any genetics on it. It's also a very fragile bacterium. Hmm. And if you cannot do any genetics on it, that means if you want to look at a specific factor of the bacterium that is potentially involved in pathogenesis or virulence, you cannot really get rid of this or make it be expressed in really high numbers, which is the typical ways of studying these factors. Hmm. So you have to figure out different ways to go at it. And what I'm doing is I have this other bacterium that's kind of kind of like a relative. And this bacterium, it's also spiro. It's from the same family, um, actually from the same genus. And um, we have this bacteria transformed with a factor that we, we think is important in the spreading of the syphilis bacterium mm-hmm. and we're studying whether this factor is actually really involved in the process hmm. and then potentially that could become a vaccine target right so it's kind of like a molecular pac-man that degrades other things <laughs> that sounds it's fascinating that you can't actually culture it and mm-hmm. study it the way you would do other things yeah uh, instead it has to be with rabbits so you're, you're, you, you called it a beautiful pathogen. You get very excited about this. How did you come to be studying syphilis? How did you get here? Um, it's interesting. I, um, I've, I've always been fascinated by uh, bacteria because mm-hmm. they live everywhere. They, they can survive almost any condition. Uh, I, I mentioned this one doesn't breathe oxygen. Uh, there's bacteria that live um, in the Arctic, super cold temperatures, or in the hot geysers, or in the depths of the oceans. So it's an incredible diversity. Mm-hmm. And if you turn the page to pathogens, it's incredible how these like tiny, teeny things that you can't even see under, like with your bare eye, um, they can infect you and they can cause so much damage. So they, they have to have these incredible mechanisms to do that. And this just fascinates me mm-hmm. how something so tiny and something that you can't even see can can kill you in like no time um so i was taking a course in uh, microbiology in my fourth year mm-hmm. at uvec and um my current supervisor was teaching this course and it was probably the most interesting course that i took in at uvec so after that i talked to her and i asked if she had any um spots in her lab and sort of got to learn more about the research and well, first of all, it's the curiosity and the challenge working with something that's so difficult to work with. And mm-hmm. very few people in the wor- world work with this pathogen. And at the same time, it has the incredible potential to make a really significant difference in the world. Yeah. There are 36 million cases of syphilis worldwide mm-hmm. and 11 million new infections per year. Mm-hmm. So that puts things into perspective. So it's very fascinating for you to work with it. Obviously very rewarding. Is there an does the idea that you could be working toward a vaccine that could help millions of people, does that add any kind of urgency to the research you're doing? Do you feel like this is a, like a puzzle that you really, really want to solve? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, the, the vaccine is a long way from now, of course. Um, there's a lot of challenges get, getting there. But um, in research, everything is uh, cumulative. So you do a little bit here, someone else does a little bit there, and it just adds up to, to the big good thing. Um, so for sure, when I'm working, I know that it's not affecting just me. It could eventually affect everyone and could could be something really good. So that kind of like gives you a drive to to keep working. But it's also a curiosity because mm-hmm. that's the first thing that got me into this, trying to figure out how the heck is this thing doing that? Yeah. 
So were you uh, a biology student at UVic when you started? I started in biology and then I switched to microbiology. Right. <laughs> Just the fascination of, yes. of bacteria. Yeah. yeah. When you were in high school, did you think that you were going to go through and do biology? Was it just a natural interest for you? It definitely was. Uh, biology was probably my favorite subject. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always thought, oh, I'm going to end up working in a lab. And I didn't know whether I would be working with bacteria or something else, but I knew that I wanted to do biology. <laughs> mm -hmm. Did you go straight through from high school to university? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And now you're doing your master's. So how far along are you uh, Are you before you're going to be finished your master's? I'm actually almost done writing my thesis. Right. So hopefully very soon I will be submitting this, the thesis to my supervisor and then defense and then I'm done. So you said that there's not a lot of people in the world that are working on syphilis. Does that mean that you guys are in contact with each other, talking about the, the stuff that you're doing and breakthroughs that you have, that kind of thing? For sure. We, uh, there is a conference that happens, I think, every two years in the States. Mm -hmm. um, and all the people that work with bacteria that are spiral, they're called spirochetes, and the syphilis bacterium falls under this category, they meet and then they, they discuss cutting research, cutting edge research. Mm. And um, it's a really good venue for scientists to talk and exchange ideas and collaborations are formed, which is really useful in this field because, yes, there is very few people that, that do that kind of work and it's challenging and it's different from the typical one. Mm -hmm. So we do try to collaborate with, with other scientists. Um now, you're working towards a potential vaccine. Uh, this has been in the news a lot recently with the whole anti-vax movement and, you know, measles popping up because mm -hmm. people are not getting vaccinated. Uh, when you see stuff like that in the news and this is your work, wh how do you feel about that? What do you think? Does it kind of make you want to tear your hair out? <laughs> <laughs> about the measles one in particular? Or yeah, the whole just the anti whole anti-vax uh, movement. Well, uh, people have their own choices and... They're entitled to their own choices, but there is something called herd immunity. Mm -hmm. And for something that is dangerous and affects a lot of people uh, with high morbidity, well, you kind of have, in a way, a responsibility to other people, um, not only to yourself, to your children, but also to, to the community. Because mm -hmm. if you're vaccinated, you're not going to be a vector, you're not going to be uh, infecting other people. So in a way, this is called herd immunity because you by vaccinating yourself you protect others and the more people that are vaccinated the better protected other people are mm -hmm. so it's social responsibility really in a way yes especially for the really really dangerous ones yeah with something like a syphilis vaccine would that eventually be for general population or is it would it be a vaccine that would be specifically for like targeted groups of people well, first of all, syphilis is actually completely treatable and curable with antibiotics. Mm. But the fact that there's so many cases still means that there's something that's not being done properly. So this treatment is not um, enough. So in areas like Africa, for example, um, it's a huge area, um, it would probably, they would really, I think, benefit from such a vaccine. Mm. Um, so maybe you can definitely start by targeting certain populations that are at high risk. Mm. And then later on, um, people can think about it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, 
uh, it's pretty amazing that you can study it without being able to like culture it in the lab and stuff. So you you said that you have to infect rabbits to be able to do this, and then you have to extract it from the rabbits. Can you maybe explain the process of once you've extracted it from the rabbits, how you deal with it then? Is there like a time period before it dies? How does that work? So I normally don't do this. I don't work with the actual uh, pathogen, the syphilis pathogen. I right. work with the relative one. All right. Um, but the process... I've I've seen it once. Um, what they do is they extract the bacteria, and mm-hmm. then you got to work really fast because yes, they're exposed to oxygen. They're outside of their host normally, so they're really not feeling happy, and they're really fragile. Mm-hmm. It, it's really funny because it's such a dangerous pathogen that it can go anywhere in your body, yet it's so fragile at the same time. Um, so you have to be really fast with it, and it loses infectivity within hours to days. Hmm. So if you want to do something, you have to extract it and then do your experiment. Um, otherwise, you're losing the, the potential answers you're seeking. Right. And you're dealing with uh, the bacteria that's related to it. Um, that sort of acts in the same way. Is that right? It's a very interesting bacteria that uh, there's a lot of confusion around it. Um as far as we know, it's non-pathogenic, so it doesn't cause disease. But mm-hmm. originally, it was isolated together with a with a syphilis bacterium. Um, so maybe it was pathogenic at a point, and then it became non-pathogenic, which mm-hmm. happens with bacteria. But it's a very it's a close relative, so it kind of at a at a physiological level, it's similar to this bacterium. And since we can grow it in the lab, we don't have to use rabbits, mm-hmm. um, and it's much easier. Um, and and just cheaper, and we can do genetics on it, which means that we can uh, we can add or delete things uh, from it, and this is exactly what what I'm doing in my project. Mm. Adding and deleting things genetically well, from it. We have we we already have something that's inserted in it, um, and this is this protein which which acts as a the molecular Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. So, and we're interested in the function of this protein. So this is how we go about studying it because. Ideally, we would we would look at the bacterium that causes syphilis and then just delete it from there and see if it changes anything. Yet we can't do that. Mm-hmm. So instead, we have this protein or molecular Pac-Man on the non-pathogenic bacterium, and we're looking to see whether it actually allows this bacteria to invade um, tissue layers. Ah, and so the idea is then if. This uh, protein is present with the syphilis bacteria. Is that what allows it to be so dangerous? Is that what you're looking at? Yes. Kind of? yeah. oh, so okay. we're trying to figure out if this is... We know that this protein is for sure um, involved in the process of dissemination or spreading around the body, mm-hmm. um, but we don't know to what extent. We know that it serves as, uh, as a molecular Pac-Man in a way that it degrades other proteins, mm-hmm. um, and it also is able to attach to a lot of things in the human body. Um, and the interesting thing is that it's it's able to attach to and degrade components of um, the endothelial barrier. And this endothelial barrier is actually what lines uh, blood vessels. So it can pass through that. Yes. So if the bacteria can pass through the vessels, and this is the way it does it, then it goes. It essentially hijacks the, the blood vessels. It uses it as um, kind of like a high-speed highway, and it can go anywhere. Wow. So if we figure out whether this particular protein is involved in this process, maybe if we block the function of this protein, we can prevent the spread. Mm-hmm. And we also know that it's on the surface of the bacterium, and things that are on the surface make good targets for vaccines. Mm. So we have this protein now in the non-pathogenic bacterium, and we, we have this kind of artificial 
barrier, blood vessel barrier that we've created,、mm-hmm. and we add the bacteria on top with or without this tac-、uh, Pac-Man protein, and then we see whether it allows the bacteria to go through or not.、Hmm. So, have have you done that? Are you in the process of doing that many many times to see how it works? I've done it, and we still need to do more research.、Right. That's that's with research. You you have to do more and more and more、mm-hmm. to be convinced that it's really what it is.、Huh. Um, and it seems like there is an effect. Hmm. Uh, it seems like this protein、uh, does allow the bacteria to to go through a little bit better than without. Right.、Uh, we still need to confirm those results, but it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how how do you go about making a uh, uh, like a a simulation of a blood vessel barrier? Oh, it's really cool, actually. <laughs> it, it it took a really long time.、Um, I struggled with it for. Yeah, very long time.、It、was a lot of sleepless nights, but the whole idea is、um, the lining of blood vessels is sort of like there is a, a membrane,、mm-hmm. and then on top of this membrane, it's called a basement membrane because it lies on the bottom.、Mm-hmm. On top of this membrane, there's a thin layer, just a single layer of cells, and these are called endothelial cells. Okay. Now,、um, if if you imagine the the blood vessel, it's kind of like a tube. But if you cut the tube along its length and then you flatten it out,、mm-hmm. you pretty much have a sheet of cells that are attached to each other, and then underneath there is a this basement membrane.、Mm-hmm. So essentially, I'm making an artificial copy of this, where、um, I use this.、Um, it's called matrigel, and this matrigel is pretty much a layer that that makes an artificial basement membrane,、mm-hmm. and on top I can grow human cells. Wow. So you just go online and choose your favorite human cell line, and then you just order it, and it comes in a frozen vial. You thaw it, you you grow it out in flasks, and then you can put them on top of this membrane. Well, you go online and you choose your favorite human cell、yep. line. Is that what you said? Yes, of course it has to be the right one. Is there like pictures of smiling faces and like this is my these are my cells that are up for sale? How does that no, work? They that haven't sounds- done that yet. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you pretty much choose the cell that you need, and in my case, this was just the cell that as、um, that makes up the、uh, human umbilical cord vein. Wow! And these are endothelial cells. They're called HUVAC for HUVAC umbilical vein endothelial cell. It's a mouthful.、Mm. Um, but yeah, you just choose the cell that you need. In this case, you need that. In other types of research where people work with,、um, for example, crossing the blood-brain barrier,、mm-hmm. you're gonna choose a cell line. That is from this area, right? Or if you want to work with epithelial cells, you choose an epithelial cell line,、hmm. or so on and so forth. So cells from different parts of the body that will、yes. mimic、mm-hmm. what you're doing. Wow! So then, yeah. So you grow in little vials your your cells, and then you spread them out. Is that what you said? Well, they come in a frozen vial,、mm-hmm. which you thaw, yeah, and then you you grow it out into flasks,、mm-hmm. um, and. It just provides a growth surface for them, and then you freeze more vials, so you have lots of them. And then you can freeze—sorry, you can thaw one of them, and then you put it on top of this membrane, and you—and then they start growing and multiplying until they form a tight layer. Wow! Is、yeah. it easy to grow them? Is it, you just have to have the right conditions, and they multiply naturally?、Hmm. It's it's a learning curve for the scientist, yeah, <laughs> aka me, aka me, to、um, to learn how to do it. But eventually. It, it becomes a routine procedure. The、mm-hmm. cells know what to do. So as long as they have the right conditions, they will multiply and they will form the layer.、Hmm. Um, one interesting thing with these particular types of cells,、um, I want them to make a tight monolayer, so I don't want any holes between them. Otherwise, the bacteria will just go through、right. easily. I want to have an actual barrier. But sometimes these cells kind of like cheat and tr- and start forming tubes. 
And so they actually um, they actually start forming capillaries, uh, which is exactly what I don't want because then you have just um, empty spots and then just the tubes are on. It's kind of like a network. Or under the microscope, it's really interesting. It looks like a beehive. Huh. And the beehive is actually the tubes. And then in the center of the beehive is just a hole. Oh. Um, so this is a natural response of, uh, of these type of cells because if you, if you think about tumors... Uh, tumors grow into areas where there's um, they can uh, in the middle of tumors there is no oxygen and mm-hmm. there is no food supply because they grow bigger and bigger and bigger and they eventually would need oxygen and food supply so they induce these type of cells to form tubes to form capillaries and bring them oxygen and food huh. so in certain conditions these cells naturally develop these tubes and so I have to figure out a condition where they don't form the tubes because I want them to form a monolayer so was there a lot of trial and error involved in getting them to grow yeah. flat? <laughs> it's wow. really interesting and really beautiful to see them under the microscope. And there you're like, ah, I don't want this, but it's so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Does it take a long time to grow uh, the, the monolayer that you want? It really depends on how many cells you put. Hmm. Um, and if they have the right conditions, what I normally do is I put enough cells so that overnight I have enough of a tight layer mm-hmm. that I can actually add on top the bacteria. Right. So they're pretty quick as long as you, you provide the right conditions and the right number of cells. And then how long, when you put the bacteria on top, how long does it take for them to make it through the layer? It depends on the different bacteria. The ones I'm working with take a while. Hmm. Um, anywhere between 30 and 48 hours, you start to see good numbers traversing. Mm. And so I guess that would be like the the infection time if you were exposed to, like potentially if you're exposed to the syphilis bacteria, bacteria and that's how it works, it would take around that time to get through, do you think? Well, in the literature, if you read the papers about the, infe- the infection capabilities, um, they say that within an hour, hmm. um, the pathogen can pretty much spread around your body through the blood. Wow. Which is really fast. And we have to keep in mind that this is um, the actual syphilis bacterium, not the ones that I'm working with. Right. Um, so it is possible that the actual pathogen is really fast. It probably has other proteins on the surface that contribute. Hmm. Um, the, my bacteria are kind of non-pathogenic. So they only have one added protein. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's possible that they're just it takes longer. Yeah. The protein needs to get active as well. Right. Um, and what does... The protein come from? Do you know? Is it something that would naturally be present in the human body that attaches to that bacteria, or is it some, from somewhere completely different? Well, this protein is uh, is on the bacteria. It's it's oh, from it, bacterial the, origin, right? Um, it is true that sometimes the the process of um, pathogenesis and evasion is facilitated by proteins from or components of the human body. Um, in this case, it seems like it is the protein that's doing all the work mm. um, because it's, it serves as this Pac-Man, so it degrades things. Um, an interesting thing, though, is, um, as I said, this protein needs to get active at some point. And to get active, it, it can either activate itself by chewing its end, kind of like a scorpion in a way. Weird. <laughs> um, uh, or the other way is to use thrombin, which is a human protein and it's involved in the coagulation process. So when you get a cut, right. thrombin is one of the factors that makes sure that the cut gets closed. Mm-hmm. So if you think about an infection, when you get a pathogen in, usually there is a cut or some sort of an abrasion in the skin. Mm-hmm. So thrombin is always present there. So if the bacteria are there and thrombin is present in high numbers, 
then thrombin actually activates, ironically, the protein on the bacteria and facilitates spreading of the bacteria. So the bacteria sounds pretty like perfectly evolved to infect humans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, essentially, you can think of it as the survival of this bacterium means perfection of infection because it dies when you take it out of the human body. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, the only way it can survive is within humans. And it's, it, it's a really interesting disease because it, it has different stages. And again, it's a pathogen that has evolved the ability to, to infect and stay within the organism because it doesn't necessarily um, kill you right away. It, it starts by a first phase and then it enters the second phase. And then the, uh, there is a latent stage in which um, the bacteria, it's kind of like it's there, but it's hiding. Hmm. And you can remain in this stage for the rest of your life without any further complications. So you could essentially just be a host and not have any symptoms? Yeah. So nowadays uh, with, with antibiotic treatments, um, you, can, you can kind of um, usually treat the bacteria. Inadvertently, you, you treat the bacteria, um, the case, and you don't develop other complications. But in the past, um, in a study where they did not administer antibiotics, um, if I remember correctly, a third of the cases developed Um, into the latent, into the uh, tertiary stage. Mm -hmm. And then two-thirds of the patients did not develop any further complications. So the bacteria is there. It's it's caused what it's caused, and it's hanging out and not doing anything. It's kind of like waiting dormant. Wow. This must give you a real respect for the natural world when you see these kinds of things. Like, it's so sophisticated. Yeah, that's what I meant by saying it's something so small and something so fragile, yet it has such an incredible capacity to to do so many things in your body and even kind of like hijack your own body against itself Yeah, to <laughs> for its own purposes. It's funny that, um, that your research is aimed at sort of obviously you want to protect humans and keep people healthy, but is it weird working to, to sort of kill or stop things like that when you can see what a interesting like i don't know sophisticated thing it actually is um (laughs) interesting (laughs) question i i don't really think about kind of like i'm working to kill those things i'm i'm working to understand how they function Mm. with the uh potential uh for discovering a way to stop them from invading us. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, they're species, we're a species, and they're pathogen for us, so we don't want them to be a pathogen. We don't Mm want to get rid of them. Um, And when we get rid of them, eventually there's going to be something else, and just a constant battle um, for survival of species. So in a way, it's our species against their species, alien versus predator. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're almost out of time here. Uh, What are you going to do when you're done uh, your master's? Are you going to continue working on uh, on syphilis? I think I want to go into teaching because I really enjoy uh, translating knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoy interacting with um, with students. Yeah. I've really enjoyed TAing during my program. So I'll probably try to do something related to teaching. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being my guest thank today. You. <laughs> Again, thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV.